Carnivorous couch, it happens once a week. It swallows us for two hours when we try to sleep. It forces us to watch a film about which we then speak. Carnivorous couch with Brady and Rob. Hi everybody, hi everybody, hi everybody, and welcome to another week uh, at the Carnivorous Couch. And uh, it's just Brady and Rob this time. Brady, yep. say hello. We're empty nesters again. It's hard. I missed Ross and Ben. That was a good cast, man. Yeah, I haven't heard them. it yet, so I don't know. Oh. <laughs> I see. Give it away, why don't you? Give Well, give away what movie we did this week, why don't you? Yeah, we did Children of Men, and I'm just going to go ahead and jump into this with the plot synopsis. Go. Okay, we get uh, Act 1. We have this guy named Tio. Um, he sees some news reports Theo. about... Tio. Tio. I mean, it's just the same way of pronouncing the same name. Tio is one of the characters in Breaking Bad, though. Tio! Fine. I'm, just <sighs> I'm sorry. <laughs> I won't interrupt. Turnabout is not fair play, Brady. I know. I always say that, too. Anyway, we got Tio. We got the death of baby James. Diego. Diego. <laughs> Sweet baby James, like the James Taylor song. Exactly. And then we get an explosion also symbolizing that because this is a story about a volcanic powder keg. Much like the one that started World War One. this one starts the uprising. Uh, we have uh, uh, a few different spheres of society that are illuminated before we delve into them. Um, the first one is his job, which represents conformity. The second being um, the rebellion, because he's kidnapped by his old ex-wife w- relationship chick. She's hot. She's Julianne Moore. She's hot. Julianne Moore. Isn't her name like Jillian? It is. Actually, it's spelled Julian. Oh, it's actually like Julian Fries? But it's pronounced Jillian. Exactly. It's like Julian Assange. Oh, okay. Yeah. Nice. So anyway, uh, yeah. He gets kidnapped by her. She wants him to get papers for this chick or something like that. And um, then we go. He uh, doesn't want to go back to work, so he calls him sick, basically. And he goes to this dude Jasper's hideout, who represents uh, the pacifist hideout. Anyway, uh, after he goes there, he goes to this art sanctuary to ask for the thing. Am I missing anything yet? Oh, yeah. He goes to his cousin's. It's his cousin's place, and he lives in the, the sheltered part of London, They've created like kind of an artificial oasis of how London used to be. So I'm not missing anything. Yeah. <laughs> All right. His cousin being the most powerful, um, he's basically acting this out by drenching himself in the past and being um, willfully ignorant to the situation that's going on outside. Again, the Balkanian powder keg that's about to explode or has exploded with the death of baby Diego. Or baby James. Um, anyway, willful... Ignorance by the most powerful of the people. Anyway, we go on to uh, Act 2. Brady, take us up in Act 2. He decides to help his uh, Jillian, and he goes where? Okay, so, uh, well, I I don't know specifically where it is. My knowledge of England isn't that great, but... Yeah, you don't need to know that. But he goes to, with them, to... Yeah, he he goes with them to a uh, farmhouse... Uh, and he's... Well, wait. They're on the way to the farmhouse, and things shit goes down. Oh, yeah. Well, okay. Okay. So what happens is, essentially, he reluctantly 
agrees to help Julian with her project, not knowing for sure what it's about. You know, he doesn't know the full thrust of it. And so he finally meets this other main character we're going to get to know really well named Key. She's uh, an African girl, a young African girl, probably in her, probably below 18, right? Like 17-ish. Right, they, so they go to the farmhouse. Yeah, well, they're they, on their way to uh, on the a way, hideout. So on their way to the farmhouse with them, they are ambushed. Uh, a roadblock is set up in a very masterful tracking shot that goes for uh, about two minutes, I want to say. Uh, it starts with, you know, Clive Owen's character and Julianne Moore's character simply flirting. Theo and Julianne are just flirting, recounting how they know each other. And then all of a sudden, a flaming truck rolls into the road. They're ambushed. Julianne's killed. And, you know, in the... We'll, we'll get back to the amazing shot, but Julianne's yeah, killed. Yeah, in the, in the melee, Julianne's killed. But they do eventually make their way back to the farmhouse. So now it's Theo, this girl, Key, this uh, young uh, black girl... Uh, this other guy played by Chuetel Ijefor, and then uh, a woman who's basically Key's servant. We don't know in what regard yet, but she she, she's her midwife. Yeah, basically. she's well. Well, there we go. Yeah, spoiler full podcast. Of course, you should have seen this movie. If you haven't, you should be ashamed of yourself. Um, Seriously. Yeah. Why are you listening to this podcast if you haven't seen this? Anyway. Um. So yeah. Uh. T. T. Oh wait. We we didn't even mention that. Um. The human race can't have babies anymore. It's set in twenty fifty. Yeah, this is this is the <laughs> this is the most important. This is the movie. the w- The human race can't have babies anymore, and in the wake of this fact, the world, most of the world, has devolved, and the pretty much we're led to believe the only real stronghold left is England. But it's a stronghold that is just teeming with human rights violations. We're basically looking. We're coming into a world that's collapsing on itself. Paul Canyon and powder cake. Mm-hmm. Yes, it's collapsing upon itself because they can't make babies anymore. And this chick key in a kind of a nativity sort of scene reference. Oh, I agree. Reveals herself to be pregnant. Well, explain it, that. Where do, fact, where do we meet? Where do we find out she's pregnant? At the farmhouse. Yeah. After Jillian is killed. And she says, look, I'm supposed to trust you. Jillian said, only trust you. You can't trust any of these people. And uh, we shortly find out after that that Jillian's been killed by her own people, so forth and so on, and now they need to get away. They do get away, um, and they go to the pacifist hideout. Um, after that, they bring uh, the Fishes, who is the name of the uh, militant uh, uh, activist group who they were hanging out with who decided that they were going to kill them and you know use the baby for their own political purposes. Then we go to... Um, Bexhill. Yeah. We go to the pacifist hideout. Oh, uh, wait, no. Yes. Uh, sorry, Be- Bexhill is the name of the next place. Okay. Uh, pacifist hideout, they follow them there. Jasper tries to hold them off. Uh, Jasper gets killed, and uh, Duders of uh, Theo, or Theo, Theo, as it were, is forced to watch. Kind of. Uh, he's not forced to, but he watches. Um, anyway, then we go on to uh, where Jasper sent them, which is to Sid, the soldier. Sid finds uh, takes him to an inn. They go to the inn. They give birth at the inn. Then they Sid comes well, back in, finds out they have a baby. This Sid, is Sid doesn't take them into the inn, though. Well, Sid takes the Sid lets them be refugees, and then puts them into the refugee camp, and then they get somebody to get them an inn. Yeah. Right. Okay. And it's somebody that Sid recommended. Blah blah blah. They're now refugees. They're no longer British citizens. Um, this is important because Britain has become a police state where they are 
kind of uh, detaining all the things. Anyway, I'm trying to move this along quickly and not get into too much detail and just say what happens. Mm-hmm. Um, then after that, we go uh, through many military things. Uh, Sid finds out that they have a baby, then wants to use him for his own gains, but they get away. Um, then at this point in time... Uh, they get picked up by these rich people who are astounded by the fact that there's a baby, and we get the scene where they have simultaneously the youngest person in the movie and the oldest people in the movie, which I thought was interesting, which we'll talk about later. But uh, then the collapse happens, right? Because all this time, the collapse of meters kind of been getting going up, going up, going up. Like, we know that the collapse is going to happen. It's been set in motion by just everything reaching a fever pitch. And so now they're thrust into the middle of the fishies and the immigrants who are, like, rebelling against the police state of Britain. And they get out of it by going, hey, baby. And everybody goes, oh, my God, baby, you need to get out of here. And then they get on a boat. And then uh, Theo gets shot in the melee and dies. And uh, Key maybe possibly gets onto this place called the Human Project, which is where they're going to solve the problem of human infertility, which may or may not exist. So yeah, that's I'd a plot synopsis. <laughs> I'd even say unambiguously she does. Uh, but that's just me reading into the final sound that we hear, which is the laughter of children over the black credits and the title flashing again. Yeah, but that's after, like, the entire credit sequence we hear. Children, right? No, Did we hear it before? It's, then? like, the first thing we hear. Okay, also we... in the plot. Anyway, plot synopsis is done. done. Uh, now we go on to... Hey, 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 how do we like it? Brady, how do you like this movie? Oh, I, it's great. It's uh, I think it's a modern masterpiece. I know you're sick of me saying masterpiece, but... but yeah, for the, figure the... out... Get a thesaurus, bitch. Well, uh, what, what is a masterpiece? What do we... It's it's a very incoherent term, and therefore I don't like it. It's it's uh this is a singular work of art that has a, a very strong humanist message. It's uh, some of the most brilliantly conceived cinematography uh, I've ever seen. Well, it's not a singular work of art. It's built. It's based on a book. I, I, that may be true, but I think you know what Quaron and Lubeski do in kind of zeroing in on the kernels of it. singular means it stands alone, right? This yeah, is an adaptation of a book that existed before. Therefore, it's not singular, right? Uh, I mean, I don't know. Basically, yeah, th- this is this is a, a great work of art. I, I think... Pick. <laughs> I, I give it a total A. At, at one point, it was my like number five of 2006. I think now it's my number two, probably. Uh, yeah, it's one of the great movies of the, uh, of the early or mid-21st century. Uh, yeah, I give this one an A-. It was great. Um, I'm kind of bored at the beginning of the movie, and then I watch the movie, and I go, oh, yeah, that's right, this movie is really good, and then all sorts of crazy elaborate set pieces happen, and, like, it just kind of drives, uh, it, it kind of, it ties itself together in a nice, neat little package, because, you know, uh, Tio's character, or Theo, as Brady wants to call him, but I think Tio or Theo is, they're both fine. Anyway, Well, um, Tio means uncle in Spanish. I'm not saying T-I-O, I'm saying Theo, 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 not Theo, but Theo, not Theo, but Theo, not Theo, but Theo, not Theo, but Theo, not Leo, but Theo, anyway, um, anyway, uh, this film has this method, which is like, Taking uh, Bazin's transcendental lens uh, and bringing us as the transcendental subject, like in these one shots, where basically we get to see what's around the corner at the same time they do. We we really get drawn into being like, 
uh, and just a masterful like way to twist the cinematography is that we're like a band. We're like you never feel most of the time it's it's mostly Tio and Key. There's two people who are the main thing. They pick up and leave people as time goes on. Uh, but it's mostly them. They're the two people who are like um, definitely going to be going through this until the end, in which, of course, they all dies. <laughs> uh, but you never feel like it's two people. You always feel like it's a we. Oh, like yeah. I, you're I you're part of them. We're with them. There's always three people. And one of us is the transcendental subject, which is constantly behind them or in front of them. Right. Based I mean, on when the we, cinematography. When we first meet Key, we know she's. No, I'm important. not done saying how much I oh, like it, bitch. Sorry. I'm saying bitch a lot lately. Ben, I'm sorry for all you female Bens out there. Um, yeah, I, I don't mean bitch is a bad thing. I, I would prefer to be a woman. But uh, anyway, uh, all these things happen. And this movie's really good. But at the beginning, you don't realize how good it's going to be, which is kind of surprising and. Pleasantly so, but yeah. I mean, I disagree there. I I think this movie, I think one of the reasons I like it, and the reason I'm probably misusing the word singular, but I think one of the things I'm going for is I feel it's really Duplier. Say, oh, what? Duplier. Duplier? Duplier. All right, I'll say Duplier for Rob. But the, the reason I think it's really focused is that... Didn't say it wasn't focused. Yeah, I... I mean, what I like about it is I think from the very beginning, it's locked into kind of an interesting, simple, but kind of deceptively open, uh, complex theme. And it lays a lot of track in the beginning, kind of getting you familiar with the stakes of this world. Namely, first well, It doesn't of all, tell you that it's laying the pipe, though, which is nice. Oh, yeah. No, no. It doesn't tell. It's very it unclear just that that's you. what they're doing. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, and obviously the most important thing of that is... The, the entire uh, premise, which is that it's a world that's dying because it can't have children anymore. It's not dying because of nuclear war. It's not dying because of uh, pollution. It's dying because literally mankind can't do the one thing that we're required to do to perpetuate ourselves. Uh, and yeah, I think, you know, in those early scenes, uh, Quaron has maybe like, God, like, he might be one of the best cinematographers I've ever seen working. Emmanuel Lubezki, a Mexican cinematographer who's worked almost exclusively with Quaron, I think, a couple of stuff notwithstanding, like, really, really gets you into this. Like, here's one thing I liked, Rob. I like the collage element. It's it's almost like a collage of uh, 21st century anxiety moments. Like, when they first get into the prison camp, we get the 9-11-style missing persons photo board. Uh, I was thinking more like, you know, Nazi Germany, like, all the refugees are scum to them. They have to de- dehumanize them in the way that the Nazis did the Jews and other... Oh, yeah. I mean, it, and it definitely resonates with that as well. Anyway. <laughs> um, but, yeah, no. I what I like, though, is I think this thing has a really, really human and at the same time realistic theme that it locks into. And I agree with you. I mean, I don't want to completely agree with you because I think the opening portions are wonderful. In fact, that's all I really want to say is I, I like everything about it. Oh, they're good. But um, uh, they're not as good as the ending bits, which are amazing. But yeah, no, it's, you know, that quote, uh, you have a hit if you wow them in the end. Coron, I think, and Lubeski, who's a cinematographer who really knows what Coron wants to go for, save the last, I'd say, 20, 30 minutes for giving you what the entire movie is really about. 
and I think it it just builds nicely to just a a big explosion, a powder keg, if you will, of a conclusion. Yeah. And there's also the fact that um, you know Theo lost his child, uh, his and and Julian, or Julian's, and um, that in a way mirrors the uh, human race's loss of all its children. Uh, which basically makes him the perfect surrogate to see through keys uh, having the child and then the child getting to safety. Yeah, yeah, no, I mean, it's they don't belabor it too much. I think, you know... But all that's really important, that those beginning things are there where it's chaotic. Right. He basically has no purpose. He's drinking and smoking. Everyone's like, they'll kill you. He's like, yeah, fuck it. Like, you know, there's no kids anymore. And then as soon as he finds out that she has, uh, has, has baby, then he goes, I have a purpose again. And his purpose is realizing their need eyes. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I mean, see, that's what I like that's present from frame one to frame Omega is we come into a world that has no real purpose. Like, the feeling I get is that, you know, for example, the Edgy of Four character, the revolutionary activists, they want to use the baby as a bargaining chip. But if the human race can't reproduce, then there's no stake to anything. Everyone is just has no purpose. They're playing for second place in a cosmic poker game. Okay, wait. So do you like this movie? I, I love it. I like this movie, too. Uh, we both like this movie. That hence ends the segment, hey, 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 how do we like it? And damn it, if we're not going to go and uh, do our understudy, and then we're going to come back and we're going to pick this thing apart like sequence by sequence. Mm-hmm. Like vultures that can't reproduce. <laughs> We're so sorry we couldn't get the actors to do the scene from this screenplay, but we've got two understudies, and to be honest, they're probably more famous anyway. So try to catch the actors, try to guess the movies. Tweet us at C A R N Y Couch. This game called Understudy is happening, happening, happening right now. Hmm. Ventura. Yes, Satan. <laughs> I'm I'm sorry, uh, sir. I, you sounded like someone else. Never mind the wisecracks, Ventura. You owe me rent, <laughs> Mr. Shikadance. Uh, I told you you're not my uh, first priority. <laughs> as soon as I find the white pigeon, uh, you're paid. I heard animals in there, Ventura. I don't. Again this morning, scratching around. I never bring my work home with me, sir. Oh, yeah? What's all this pet food for? <laughs> Fiber. Uh, <laughs> you want to take a look for yourself? Go ahead. Well, <laughs> are you satisfied? <laughs> yes. Just don't let me ever catch you with an animal in here, Potter. That's all. <laughs> oh, okay then. Uh, take care now. Bye bye. <laughs> Loser. <laughs> that was understudy. Tweet us your answer at C A R N Y Cow. Welcome back to our new segment, which we started last week. It's called What's the Hour About? That's very nice. That's right. Uh, Brady, what's this movie all about? 
Um, I mean, if I had to pick a quote that I think sums it up, it's when we go from the pacifist hideout of Jasper's uh, to the schoolhouse where they're waiting for Sid to pick them up and take them to the refugee camp. And as Theo is talking with the midwife, and she's basically, she's giving us a, an eyewitness kind of account of how it all started. She was working in a hospital when suddenly, you know, babies started to appear less and less. She'd look at just blank rosters of uh, babies of births. And she says that, you know, the world's a really odd place without the voice of children. And so what I think the movie is about, and I just want to quickly interject that I think uh, Gravity, Quaron's latest, has shades of this as well, is kind of this gulf between life and death. And so it's basically just about looking at a world, looking at the human race, and kind of viewing our capacity for self-destruction and how maybe the only thing that really saves us that is our better angels is the fact that we have to pass this world on to children. Something about that, something primal in our DNA, you know, other than the scummiest of scum, uh, makes us realize, like, well, as much of a greedy dick as you are, even if you're a murderous, greedy dick, you probably feel something when you hear the voice of a child, when you look at a baby. And so it's, yeah, just this kind of, this sad tale, but also hopeful about what happens when a destructive human race that's on the verge of erasing itself is suddenly confronted with the, the possibility for life again. And that's touching, but we also see how quickly they they might destroy it, even when they're looking at it. So, yeah, that's, that's what it's about to me. The opening line of the ending song that uh, plays after uh, Children of Men flash on the screen again and we hear the sound of the children uh, is... We don't care what flag you're waving, which basically sums up what this movie's about, you know, in in a sentence. It's like we survive as a race or we perish as one. Oh yeah, I agree. And no matter no matter whether or not this is about, you know, it's not about the British. It's not about the refugees. It's not about the divisions. It's about the fact that, look, either we all stop fighting and let this child survive and make it to the human project, or we as a race just perish. Right. Yeah. No, I agree. So that's that's what it's all about. Kind of shades of Lords of the Lord of the Rings in that of just like are you serious that yeah that's what I mean when I say like second place in a poker game is the stakes they're playing for it, there, there's a scene I think when Theo first sees the baby and the Edgy Four character comes in and he says like in this interesting way because I think Edgy Four is like a really interesting nuanced actor and he basically says like yeah it's it's a miracle in it like he he says miracle like someone who who doesn't really believe that a miracle can exist. The the best a miracle is to him is just some kind of political leverage. Right, and she even, like, uh, kind of teases that at one point in time where she goes, like, I didn't even, I'm, I'm a virgin. You know, like, it's, <laughs> like I'm the Virgin Mary. Oh, I got you. Uh, that's fucking a lot of dudes for money. They sprinkle uh, that Virgin Mary stuff in without being too overbearing about yeah, it. Yeah, no, it's nice. It's nice. It's, it's just done uh, as much of a... A joker, a reference, uh, as it is to the characters in the narrative, as it is to the audience who's viewing the narrative. So it it doesn't it's not heavy handed. It's it's diegetic, as it were. And mm-hmm. all yes, it's always readily apparent to everybody that that's what's being said. And it's either because it's poignant or because whatnot. But anyway, uh, we all perish as one, or we all uh, survive as one. And it all comes down to the most important thing, which many parents will tell you. The most important thing to them is their kids. This is the child of humanity, uh, the children of men, as it were. Sorry, woman. Uh, they decided to use a different pronoun, 
they didn't really want to extend the title to the children of men and or women. Um, even though they kind of probably should have just said children of women because, you know, the dude could be uh, a test tube. And you still need the woman to have it. True. So... I don't know. Let's, let's not dissect. Let's not dissect the patriarchy and just say that this is a good movie despite the patriarchy in the title. That's evident. And say that this is a movie about either what's it all about? It's about perishing as one or surviving as one, and all the boundaries that we draw for ourselves are superficial. I think that ends that segment. Unless you got something more to say. Uh, you know, I just I, I want to like just if I can cap it off. I really want to compliment. I did that. <laughs> I, I want to compliment Quaron's tongue. Sorry, bad diarrhea. No, that's okay. I'm done now. It happens. No, no. I what I really like time after time because let's just say the texts are completely just phenomenal. Uh, the look of this film is just so immersive. But what I really like, and I think this is the sign of a good coherent film, is it's emotional, but it's never sentimental. And I get such a clear sense of what Coron's tone is. To me, this movie is kind of like this just slight bemused chuckle rising out of a choked sob. Like mostly it's it's sad, like, but at the same time, I think it's acknowledging like like life goes on. Like you don't really need anything more than that. It's life is just such a simple thing, and yet it's it's everything. And I think it's him shaking his head at like, well, we're we're so quick to destroy it. But at the same time, you have that amazing scene in the staircase in the building where when anyone's confronted with the possibility that life might begin again, they're just completely humbled by it. And so I, I think it's just a, a, such a nice a dissection of that, of that tension. All right. Uh, we're going to end this segment. We're going to go do our uh, rank it bitch and uh, we'll be back after that. <laughs> Hi everybody, hi everybody. Welcome to another episode of Rank It, which is on this episode of Carnivorous Sketch, which Hello. is on this episode of Podcasts of the World. That's a future series, and this episode will be featured. But you did, but you did, but you did. All right, folks. Uh, this week, irrespective of nothing, we're doing our top Robert Zemeckis movies. Uh, top seven. Top seven. Yeah. So Brady, go with your number seven while I pour us beer. All right, number seven. I'll be honest. I love a lot of Zemeckis, or a handful of Zemeckis anyway. Uh, it was a little thin in terms of padding this list with great movies, but he does have a lot of worthy efforts. So number seven, I'm going with last year's flight. Um, you know, it had its moments that I thought were a bit cloying, but there's no doubt that Washington gives one of his best performances in years. He's really electric. He kept me glued. And that opening scene with the plane crash He's is really nice. Electric. And it's what Zemeckis does, which is he can take just great uh, special effects scenes, but give them kind of like, Pop culture, like he gives it emotion, but not in any deep way. But still, in a way that you you don't feel like you've been cheated, like you're watching something that's uh, too light. So you know he, he's good at infusing emotion into into special effects, and that's no small thing. 
So yeah, flight. My number seven is flight. Ha-ho! Oh, no hitter. Let's do this. Yeah, and that's uh, the reason it's my number seven is because of that scene where he opens the fridge and that there's that, like, bottle of booze there. And it's like the fridge as a character. And I like that. I like that a lot. Ready? what's your number six? All right, my number six... Um, I'm going to have to try out my candy defense. Oh, this man, Miller High Life is horrible. Wait, this is Corona. It's Corona. Corona's horrible. <laughs> it's, it's Corona. When, d- when did you ever think it was anything but Corona? Um, I thought it was Miller High Life. Uh, That's why I thought it was a twist See, off. now it should taste better if you thought it was Miller High Life. I don't know about that. Champagne is better than urine. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, all right, my number six. This thing I like for almost purely confectionary reasons. This is the movie that pretty much coined the term Uncanny Valley. It's basically the start of Zemeckis's animation period, uh, which ended with Christmas Carol, or I don't know, he could do it again. Have you seen this more than once? I have, all numerous right. times. This is The Polar Express from uh, 2004, that. I believe. It's It's pure sugar, but... If you're in the right mood and it's the holiday time, which it is right now, it is kind of an enjoyable sugar rush. And Rip bugger! They don't got no eggnog at CVS, so I don't fucking care. <laughs> I, you know, I, I don't know what else to say about it. It's it's a pure confection, but uh, Zemeckis made it fun, and I've revisited it. And yeah, <laughs> Polar Express. All right, my numbers. Six is the second best of the Back to the Future trilogy, which is Back to the Future Part 3. Okay. It's great because he calls himself Clint Eastwood, and then they renamed the ravine to, Cl- to Eastwood Ravine. It's pretty cool. That is cool. Stop kicking my mic. No, sorry. All right, my number five. Y'all done, Rip uh, My number five is a movie I need to revisit because... My heart is totally with it, and I think it's well acted and has like a lot of sensitivity, uh, which is something I appreciate Zemeckis for. Like I, I think he gets slapped with sentimental labels the same way Spielberg does, but I think he's got a good sense of tone. Anyway, I'd have to go back to see this one, but I, I really like Contact a lot. Um, I, I think it's you know, it's a good sensitive movie with interesting ideas. I think it does justice to Carl Sagan, and uh, yeah. yeah it's uh, probably the last Ju- Julie, uh, no, Ju- Judy Foster performance that I actually liked. In any Judy Foster or Jodie Foster? Oh, Jodie Foster. Oh my God, I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah no, Jodie Foster. Foster. <laughs> you know, it's it's a nice, thoughtful sci-fi, and you like uh, Panic I like Room. It. Come on. I hate. Oh well, no, wait. I never saw Panic Room. I hated the Brave One. I hated the Brave One. I didn't see that. Is that no. Fincher? No. It's Panic Room Fincher. Panic Room's Fincher. Yeah. I haven't heard you mention that too much. I, I love Fincher. Yeah, but it seemed to be his weakest film. Right, now that I've successfully derailed your critique of Zemeckis films by talking about another director that you like, uh, I'm going to go with my uh, number uh, five, which I think uh, is probably going to be swapped with Brady's number two. I think we're just going to flip-flop and then have the same other ones. Um, Castaway. I like okay. Castaway. Castaway is good. I like that Family Guy joke where it's like, um, you know, Wilson, yeah, Wilson, 
My name's Boyt, dumbass. <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> that's the most you can say about the movie, is the Family Guy joke. <laughs> well, did you know that Family Guy killed Brian off like a few weeks ago? I heard. I uh, I heard that recently. I mean, I haven't seen Family Guy in years, but... Uh, I, I heard last week. Uh, it showed up on Facebook. Oh, man. Anyway, what's your number four? Uh, my number four actually is Castaway. Uh, this is a movie I really like a lot. It, it was one of my favorite when I was in high school. It, maybe it slipped a bit, but I, I still really like it. It's. I think there's a lot to be said for the fact that... He has to knock out his own tooth. He has to knock out his own tooth. But I, I think there's a lot... He tries to kill himself. Hold on, everybody. Alana let the dog in. Dog, out. Dog, out that way, not that <laughs> way. You didn't have to dog eat, but you did. Outside thing works now. Oh, yeah. Yeah. What are you doing? You haven't put your bike out yet. Oh, I, I just got here. So I oh, I see. Understood. <laughs> didn't have to doggy, but you did, but you did, but you did. All right, Brady, wait, you were talking about fucking All right, Castaway. Yeah. He tries to kill himself. So my my number four is Castaway. He tries to kill uh, himself. Yeah, he does. Um, no, that's where we were. You'd already oh. been through all your most of stuff. No, I hadn't gone through any of it. You'd interrupted you, it you'd three already, times. <laughs> you'd already said it was something I liked when I was in high school. It yeah, slipped a little bit. I did say that. Right. And then I said, uh, he knocks his thing out with a tooth. And you're like, as he knocks his thing out with a tooth. Yeah. And then I said, and he tries to kill himself. And he, said, he tries to kill himself. And then the door opened. I don't think you said any of this stuff in your own defense of Castaway, which is the funniest part. Why don't you just admit Castaway should be number four with you, just as it was with me? I want to hear what your number four is. We're switching it with Castaway. Anyway, Castaway, uh, for a director who's seen as very flashy, I think Zemeckis does an, a good enough job. Like, uh, fuck good enough. I think he does quite a good job of handling a film that's based almost... Purely on silence, on one character inhabiting the screen. I, I can see how growly you got on the microphone. <laughs> and thing. Um, <laughs> I, you know, I fuck it. I love Wilson. I, I think it's you know, it's nothing mind blowing, but I think it's utterly committed to its its theme of a man who thinks solely in terms of time, rediscovering himself and kind of forming a new perspective on life. And uh, yeah, I still find it gripping anytime I watch it. So yeah, the cast Castaway. Number four. For Robbie? My number four is... Which obviously beats Castaway. I mean, it's one of the best movies ever made. Wait, what is that? Back to the Future. Oh, well, yeah. Duh. Time bomb down. So that's your number four? My number four, man. Okay. okay. I guess my number three was, uh, or my number, wait. Yeah, my number six was Back to the Future Part 3. And my what number was five seven? was Castaway. My number seven was Flight, just like you. Oh, yeah. And so we're on my number four, which is uh, Back to the Future. Okay. So, I mean, like, it's one of the best movies of all time. It, it kind of basically uh, 
uh, laid out how time travel works in movies for like a bazillion years. And then some people fucked with it a little bit. But I think that's still the model that everybody adheres to is the Back to the Future model. Yeah, if, if you don't want to muck it all up, it's certainly a nice way to go. Yeah, save the paradoxes, man. I'm not interested in that. Um, okay, my number three, uh, I think a really great movie. Happened to beat my favorite movie of all time at the Oscars, but I don't hold it against it too much. It's Forrest Gump. Uh, I think it gets, uh, it's it's a really great movie. It, it even gets too hard a rap, I think. I think it's a really nice look at kind of the counterculture in America. And Zemeckis stays true to himself because it's a movie that really fuses effects with emotion. You know, those Kennedy sequences with him meeting the old presidents were revolutionary at the time. And so, you know, I think you, there's really something to be said for a guy like Zemeckis who knows his technology, who pushes the tech side of film forward, and still can tell engaging human stories. So yeah, Forrest Gump's awesome. Yeah, my number three is... Uh, is uh is uh, Forrest Gump? Uh. Abbott. Psych. Fifty six thirteen. Abbott. Psych. Brady, what's your number uh, two? My number two is uh, the great Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Uh, yeah, <laughs> it's one of the most wonderful noirs ever told. It also has done its homework because. L.A. actually had a controversy where essentially the motor companies interfered with L.A.'s light rail and tore it up. Uh, but mainly it's just it's just a sheer joy. Bob Hoskins is a great performer. I wish we saw more of him these days. And yeah, it's, it's just a fabulous film. My number two is Contact. Wow, that's, that's mighty high. That, that's Contact's nice. really good. You know, I, I agree. I, I know I love Contact. I mean, it's like really good. Like it's it's like a really good movie. Like it's probably should be in the top five hundred films of all time. I'd love to see it again. Contact is really good, just like shampoo and conditioner. <laughs> oh, also a movie that uses technology really nicely, without being too over the top. I, I think it. my favorite shot is um, in that movie. It's like when we're running down the hall. We're running down the hall. To go open the medicine cabinet, and then we open the medicine cabinet, and we realized that the whole thing was a reflection in the mirror. That's a good shot. The entire time. That I still don't know how they did that fucking shot. Other than maybe just CGIing the shot onto the mirror. <laughs> <laughs> Which is probably what they did. Anyway. Number one. Uh, what can I say? Number one is Back to the Future. Easy. Easy, easy. It's it's everything. It's what Zemeckis stands for. Like s- technology, cool whiz bang special effects, especially for the time. But they still hold up really nicely today. That's I think as good as this song. <laughs> almost as good as the theme from Super Mario Three. Yeah. No, no. It, it's it's Zemeck. It, like if I wanted to say what Zemeckis was about, Back to the Future is it. The emotion is just right. It's completely engrossing, and you believe in the characters and like the characters. You know, it's simple, but that simplicity doesn't mean that it's hollow or superficial. It just knows how to sprinkle in enough of the actual wonder, enough of the tech, enough of the uh, the story. And, yeah, it's, it's just a well-made, like, yeah, I don't know how to describe it. it. It's comfort food, but it's 
it deserves to be mentioned in a higher regard than that. It's it's a great film. Back to the Future is a great film. And my number one is He Friend Roger Rabbit, of course, because it's my favorite film of all time. So that was another edition of Rank It with me and Brady. And peace out, y'all. Mm-hmm. Back with the rest of the show. Rank it, bitch. All right, Brady. All right. What's the opening scene? The opening scene, uh, Clive Owen's character, Theo, goes into a coffee shop where people are all gathered around the counter looking at the TV, announcing the news that the world's youngest human being, essentially the world's baby, has died. That's baby Diego. And that's very important because the uh, world cannot have new babies. Well, but it's, but then at the same time, uh, and this is where I think, you know, I think it's even sadder than the boom. It's even sadder than the boom is I think the boom probably happened like 15 years ago. But this is like they must have been clinging to this. Like, well, we still have our celebrity. Like and, and what an interesting comment on celebrity in this situation that who they cling to the world's Princess Diana, basically, yeah, I mean, is baby the youngest James person. Died. Yeah, the, the world's baby died. Clive Owen orders his coffee, walks outside and then the coffee shop explodes. And also, doesn't he pour some booze into it? Uh, yeah, that he might do that as well. Yeah, uh, because he's an <laughs> alcoholic. Because uh, he he's he's got no purpose because his baby died. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, um, and he goes to his job. Yeah, and, and he says, uh, "I thought this was a funny line." He basically says to them, "Like, uh, can I take the day off work? Like, I'm really racked with grief about baby Diego's death." Yeah, he's gonna work from home because of that. And you can tell he's full of it, like. He's yeah. drunk enough that he doesn't care. I don't. I don't think he ever cared. Like it, the writing's been on the wall at this point. Right. Okay. So then from there we go to he goes to meet up with Jasper. Right? Yeah, we meet Jasper for the first time. This is where he goes to kind of get his leisure in, smoke some weed. Anything uh, poignant to say about this particular scene? No, I think it's mostly just developing character. I mean, uh, what, what, what I- about Jasper's invalid wife, who is obviously a journalist who uh, kind of. You know, she was more of the activist type, just like Jillian is. Uh, you know, it's a parallel between Jillian and, and uh, Clive Owen's character, uh, Thomas, uh, no, Theo. And, um, <laughs> and um, yeah, so, the, I mean, it's a parallel. Like, she was obviously a lot more active. He's always been a pacifist. She was a journalist. Right. She was tortured. There, I mean, there's uh, uh, newspaper clippings on the wall that says MI5. To, uh, dude, you're breathing all over the mic. Except I don't know if she was the journalist who was tortured. I think, but this yeah, no, there's a picture of her, and it says MI5 uh, denies oh, is that her? denies involvement in torturing of, of journalists. That's I why she's insane. I mean, that's why she's just basically invalid. She was tortured into catatonia. Hmm. Really? That's. Yeah. I thought it was just. I thought that was pretty clear. Well, I didn't think she was catatonic because of torture. But yeah, I, no, she was tortured until she would. In I well, I don't know. I, I think that's maybe. why Jasper's a pacifist. Is he's just like I can't be. I can't. I can't expose myself to this kind of evil. I don't know. It's possible. It's an interesting interpretation. I. I wasn't sure. I mean, I, for me, it was just uh, a good character. I. I like this movie because it fills its world with details, um, and they're all kind of. They all kind of fit into this idea of a world that's kind of sad and fallen out of repair. It's. It's a world that doesn't have any anticipation of dying or of living anymore. So let's talk about Jasper. Okay. Okay, Jasper's a jokester, right? He's a pacifist. He's a jokester. He's grown his pot, smoking it, coming up with strains that make it taste like strawberries when you cough. Strawberry cough. Yeah, he's a he's a gentle soul reacting to the death of the world in his own way. Uh, you know, it, but he's an old guy himself. 
I think for him it's sad, but he, he is a good, strong moral character because he doesn't choose to, you know, let that turn him into a bitter person. He doesn't succumb to this world around him, but at the same time, I think he's resigned to its fate as well. So the scene later on where Theo uh, brings uh, uh, the fishies, who are the uh, terrorist group, down upon Jasper's place when they go there. Yeah, they um, eventually catch up with him after a week or so. And, and Jasper, you know, basically gives uh, his wife the government drug quietus, which is for... Uh, uh, suicide. Basically, the government, like the the world, is so far gone at this point that the government is handing out. Hey, look! If you just want to like fucking end it, uh, we'll give you a nice drug that gives you a nice quiet death. Right. Yeah. So anyway, uh, he gives his his wife the drug, and uh, then he goes outside to confront the people and try and and uh, throw them off, stall them so that uh, the uh, pregnant lady and them have a better chance. And this is the part that's most indicative of. Uh, Jasper's thing to me is that, you know, he's still a jokester. He's still a prankster. He's sitting there going like, "Pull my finger," and they shoot him in the hand, like, you right? Know, now, what finger are you gonna pull? And like, you know, he just kind of looks at him, and like, he laughs for a second, and then he goes like really vehemently, like, "Fuck you," you know, because it's like he's basically being a pacifist and doing the thing that has kept him alive for the past however long. Right. And uh, it's not working. It's not going to work. He knows he's going to die. He knew before he's already poisoned his wife. Um, it, and he's just, like, upset at the fact that his way, though it might be a right way, it's not, you know, it's still leading to his end. Yeah, no, I, I think, you know. And then after that, he sticks out his other hand and says, pull my finger. Yeah, he, well, yeah. I mean, you know, he goes out the way that he lived He's got a positive attitude. But yeah, I think at the same time, you're right. He realizes that his fate is sealed. But I think what's nice is that he gets to do something that he wasn't even doing beforehand. I think he was living quietly, trying to think as positively about the death of the world, no less, as he could. And in his final moments, he gets a chance to actually be of some real use. He plays a role in saving the world and helping the first child, we believe, get to freedom. All right, so flashing back to where we are in the plot line, he goes to Jasper's after he, like, you know, calls him sick to his work and, uh, you know, smokes a dude with him. And then uh, when he's getting back uh, to his house or whatever, he gets kidnapped by Jillian and, and their yeah, and the terrorist fishes. group. Right, and the fishes. Um, although, shouldn't it be fishies? I don't know. I don't know why it's fishes, you know, like, unless we're Gollum. We might be Gollum. We might be Gollum with the fishies. Anyway, uh, yeah, and this is... Yeah, and she's basically like, hey, how's it going? Uh, yeah, we wanted you to get some papers. And she's like, why would I get papers? And it's very clever. Why would I get papers? It's dangerous. Yeah, he's got a little tinge of noir running through him. He's, he's yeah, why fatigued. Would, why would I want to get papers? That's not a good idea for me. Well, we know you need the money. I don't need your money. Um, you know, so that kind of stuff going on. But obviously, like, he immediately decides to do it. Like, after that, he immediately goes to uh, his cousin's place, right? Or do we have more to say about their... Reli- I don't think that seems really that important. The cousin one? No, the one before that. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. it happens. It's part of the plot. <laughs> it's unbelievably well shot. Yeah, so let's go to the cousin one. Yeah, yeah. No, the cousin, I think, is very interesting. Yeah, no, he's the willful... willful powerful class that's willfully ignorant to 
the plight of the rest of the civilization which on what on whom they depend right and uh, basically this is it seems to be probably i might be speculating but the area of london that probably always has the political power buildings kind of the government buildings and so this area you know everything else is a wreck but they've at least circled the wagons around this political area to maintain this illusion that the power structure of this country is still operating and so in there, you meet the cousin who's basically living. Well, a even before life. that, when he's driving to it, and we're we're doing the court of the Crimson King is the is the um, music, right? And it's basically like he's going to the kings. He's going to the people who like could rule the society and could make a difference because they have that much power and influence. He's sitting in a car, which there are people who are who are starving, banging, trying to get in the car, and the car's just kind of pushing through this this crowd of uh, poor miscreants who are you know they're gonna die. Right. And they're going to kill each other. And, uh, like, as soon as he enters that, you know, that mode of agency, I'm going to go see my cousin. Um, he's just basically walled himself off from the rest of the world and just going to see the the guy in the Fortress of Solitude who has a, who also has his own baby, like a very young, oh, yeah, uh, who's obviously mentally child. ill and uh, appears to be on the autism spectrum or something. Yeah, probably, like, in his early 20s. Uh, I mean, we know he's over 18. So uh, the first thing we see when he walks into that mansion is Clive Owen's character, Thelma, uh, uh, Theo. 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 <laughs> um, well, I mean, you know. Uh, the he's, it's the Michelangelo uh, statue. Of David. But with like a bionic leg because they couldn't save the entire statue. Right. Yeah, I mean, and, and plot-wise, the point of the scene is just that this is where Clive Owen is going to get his paper connections. This is how he's able to do this. He has a powerful cousin who, you know, may or may not be a member of government, certainly has privilege. But what's interesting about the scene is that we find out that the cousin character collects all these artworks from around the world. Quick jump back. He gets the papers. Also, uh, when he's talking to Jillian, he's just like, you don't need the papers from me. You could talk to anybody. And she's like, yeah, maybe. And so we know already that there's a reason that she's picking him, but we don't know what it is yet. Right. Right. But yeah, I, I think, you know, before the movie gets on to the bigger theme of, of just the world without children and exploring that, and exploring the effect of a lack of children on psychology, uh, there's this, I think that scene is very self-contained because it's more making a commentary on the power and limitations of art. Because essentially this cousin character collects works of art, one of which is Picasso's Guernica, which is one of the most seismic commentaries on violence and war ever made. And so he collects these meaningful works of art, but they're, they're deprived of meaning because the world is dying and he chooses to wall himself off and not even pay attention to what is going on in the remainder of the world. See, I reflexively uh, view it as the opposite in that he's basically, uh, he's got all the power and influence that he could possibly need to... Uh, survive this cataclysm, this cataclysm, and um, uh, what's he doing with it? He's just being willfully ignorant to what's going on outside, and uh, uh, just keeping himself walled off by all these old relics of the old society. Yeah, true. But he could say something like, you know, it's not safe out there. I choose not to go out there. But he goes further. What he says is, he just doesn't think about the world at all. So uh, the question that scene raises to me is. What, yeah, no, good, well, no. what good is art? I have the exact don't... quote written down here. It is, um, uh, shit, what is it? Uh, well, here, while you look, like, uh, I, I think the question of the scene is uh, of what use is um, art in 
you know, allowing us to think about the world, to think about our lives. I try not to think about it. When the yeah, I try not to think about it. What use is art if? Wait, let me say that again. There's no I future. I try not to think about it. No, that was clear. Uh, without me bumping the mic or anything. No, I'll ask it to you. I mean, yeah, of, of what use is art if there's no future? And this is why I think to revel in the past. <laughs> exactly. Just, just pretend it's not happening. I can just go like back when things were good. And I used to just look at this artwork. I, I think I'll go get that artwork so I can look at it and pretend that things are still good. Exactly. But but a lot Willful of people, ignorance. myself included, would say that, you know, it's a perversion of art to use it just as a salve, as a comfort. Right. But art always has and will be for the rich. It'll be produced by the rich because they're the ones who can afford uh, whatever. Either that or by people who die in poverty because they go into debt just to get a training in art. Um, I don't, well, I don't think... The, oh, yeah. Oh. I don't know. That's, this is getting off into a tangent, but... <laughs> cosine. Cosine. Tangent. Socadoa. 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 But no, but, uh, but I will say, this just reminds me of one thing. What I like is, for that first portion, I think Quaron and Lubeski run as hard as they can into despair. Because I think what they have is, at the end of the day, a work of art that has enough of an uplifting theme that it, if it doesn't erase all the sadness and misery we've seen, it has a purpose, which is to say that, you know, in spite of all the hardship we can wreak upon one another, the fact that we can still produce life, like, must still have some meaning, like. Okay, so we done with that scene? Yeah. Okay, moving on, we go back to the rebellion, right? Sure. Now, uh, uh, he goes and meets up, he gives her the papers, and they say, well... Will you see her uh, to um, where she needs to go? Uh, he says, okay, for a couple grand more, and then we just jump right into it. No no shortcutting that. No, like, I'll meet you tomorrow at 5. Fine, fuck it, let's just go do it. Give me more money. And, right. And, and uh, money might be helpful in the times upcoming. Um, so anyway, uh, he gets in the car with them, and that's where we have this amazing set piece where... Uh, they drive the roadblocks place. There's all these fucking screaming rebels, natives or whatever, coming down. And they shoot the thing. Like, he fights them off. He, like, blows them up with the thing. And then there's a cop. Uh, the cops pull him over. And then the guy goes out and shoots both cops because he doesn't want to be caught by the cops. And we later find out that this is he staged this whole thing. It was a band of things that he had set up. Uh, she was supposed to get killed right. because she did not want to use the baby for political purposes, which is why she sold... She told Key to like always trust the Clive Owen character. Yep. And uh <laughs> yep. it's just getting shorter and shorter. So I just go yep. uh, <laughs> and always trust yep. And uh <laughs> not <laughs> not trust anybody else because she knows that these guys might be pulling this kind of shit, you know? Yes, we and we so, also have a very, very subtle use of CGI to yep. uh, have the characters spinning a ping pong ball between each other's mouths. Oh, is that CGI? Yeah. And then just couldn't they just do that with a cut? No, I guess not. Yeah, I think uh, it would be pretty hard to well, do. Well, no, because it's a one shot. Oh yeah, yeah, exactly. It's yeah. A... Okay, so we get to the farmhouse where they're hiding, and at this point, we still believe that the leaders of the fishes, led by Chwetelijiefor's character, are with them, and this is where Clavon finally finds out that Key is pregnant, that the entire purpose of him providing transport papers for her Nativity is scene. to shepherd her <laughs> to 
Safety manger is Jesus. Passage I've been memorizing. Yeah. Ezekiel 25, 17. But no, the path you, you, of the righteous man is beset on all sides by the inequities of the good and the tyranny of evil men. Actually, this really kind of has a lot to do with that. Anyway, go on. Anyway, yeah, P- Pulp Fiction. Great movie. Um, no, but I mean, that quote, Ezekiel twenty five seventeen, actually has a lot to do with this movie. Go on. Well, just 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 play out the thing. Set an inequity uh, between and the tyranny of evil men. Oh, that's very evident in this film. Blessed is he who... Yeah, yeah. That's true. Right? Uh, Wait, you finish it. Blessed is he who, who is truly in the his name bro- of charity and good will shepherds no, his valley, shepherds the weak through the valley of darkness, for he alone is his brother's keeper and the finder of lost children. Exactly. Of men. Exactly. No, that, that um, I was just saying that just because something you said brought it up to me, but actually that passage really hangs very tightly with uh, Thiel and uh, his character and what he does in this film is basically, you know, like parts the waves uh like he, b- he basically parts the ocean on one side the tyranny of evil men and one side uh the good and uh shepherds the weak poor pregnant and baby uh key and who we soon find out is going to be named baby dylan or bazooka maybe um through the valley of darkness through you know these two sides the you know, good the people trying to maintain order and the chaotic and the people trying to take over and you know get some sort of political power out of this and their brutality etc but he shepherds them right through because it's in all these people's best interest to preserve the uh, right yeah no, no I, I agree i agree he, and he's a blessed character he dies uh kind of a tale of two cities ish death i mean he exists he solely himself. he exists solely to do this, like the the only reason he exists, like you know, he's got a wasted life. He right. is spared the coffee shop bombing because he walks out just in time. Right? Why? Okay. Uh, I mean, th- this film really explores faith and uh, hope as its two main themes. Uh, the midwife, who we haven't talked about mm-hmm. hardly at all, uh, is very uh, monotheistic. However, there's um there's a, a deep void of monotheistic stuff in this. Uh, it's a lot more. It seems like everybody's uh, avoiding the monotheistic thing and doing very Eastern religion stuff. Hence, many, 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 many characters do the shanti, 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 shanti. Even though this is Britain, right? And uh, kind of more secular religions and spirituality is coming into this. Uh, it's uh, the midwife is somebody who believes actually in God has a plan, and then like you know, at one point Theo gets really pissed off when Jasper dies and goes like, right? He goes like, how does this fucking serve God's plan? Right, God doesn't exist. Right. Whatever you're talking about, this monotheistic shit is bullshit. But yet, you know, he's part of God's plan. He was spared by God, and then he dies after he served his purpose. So, you know, it's a, it's yeah. an interesting dialectic between hope and faith, and you know, the antithesis of those two things, which I wouldn't. It's it's not really represented. It's it's either hope or faith. It's just like. Um, well, like, the whole thing is they're trying to get this baby to the human project. The human project doesn't exist, but it is something that's been touted by the government as existing, as the research to save well, the human race. I think we find race. out it does exist. We see the boat well, at the Not end. necessarily. There's a boat. We don't know where that boat see, goes. See, I disagree does, with you on the ambiguity of this. Okay. I don't think it's supposed to be ambiguous. Well, it's at least ambiguous until we see the boat at the end. 
Right, right. No, okay. no, obviously. So throughout it's throughout the, boat. the narrative of the film, it's ambiguous as to whether or not. Uh, I mean, this thing, the human project, is basically something that's been. Uh, it could either be have been created by the government to instill hope, or um, created by the government to instill hope when it didn't exist, or it does truly exist and it's our one last hope. But either way, it represents hope, regardless of whether or not it's a propagandist thing uh, to replace. You know the lack of monotheistic belief in deity, but I don't think the government has anything to do with the human project. I think it's a side group that operates independently. They're trying to get away from the government. If anyone's the bad guy in this, it's the government. Even the Egypt well, character, it, the government is bad in Britain because it's being militarized and and keeping everybody out. But the human problem supersedes the collapse of all the other world's governments. Britain is the one that remains. Uh, because they became a military state early on. Right, right. Uh, but all the other countries were involved in the creation of the Human Project. But it's still talked about, still advertised on all the screens, like the Human Project and stuff. It's still like touted by the government as a reason to have hope and a reason not to not despair and a reason to not like destroy everything. Okay, yeah. So the reason is either because it's real, and it's something to truly believe in, or because the government would like you to believe in it, because it's better to give the people a symbol for hope than it is to say, no, we're just going to tell you what to do, shoot you if you misbehave, and be a military state. Like, because people need to hope. And it's when they lose hope, like when uh, baby Jesse dies. Diego. Um. <laughs> baby Diego dies, and when they lose hope, that's why um, with the uh, the revolution and the uprising. But see, but the uprising has been going on long before that. Right, but perfect storm of events creates the sort of thing where it actually tips the scales. Like, the the truth is, I think we arrive at a major event that's important emotionally, uh, important for a lot of reasons, but I don't think Diego's death is actually a seismic event in terms of affecting this world. This is, this is T.S. Eliot's... World dying not with a bang but with a whimper. Yeah, but Diego's, uh, the death of Diego is at the right time. Like, this probably happened tens of times before and it'll happen tens of times in the future. The youngest person, blah, blah, blah. But a lot of things were going on that because that happened at that particular time and because this baby was alive at that particular time, like, you know, everything had just come to that point. There's like, there's the, uh, the what do I have? I have the, uh, the collapsometer written here on my scenes, and it just gets greater and greater and greater until we meet the rich people, in which case we simultaneously have the oldest people on screen and the youngest person on screen, and then after that, collapse! And Wait, then who are the rich people? The rich people. Um, oh, well, okay, so Jasper tells them to go see Sid. Right. They get away from the fishies, they go see Sid. Sid turns them to refugees, lets them into the camp, blah, 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 blah. Then Sid turns out to be a bad fucker. Uh, they kill Sid, or maybe just bludgeon Sid. It's unclear whether or not he dies. But anyway, they get away from Sid. And then, um, this is after the baby's been born. And, um, there's some Italian kind of dude or something like that. And he sees the baby, and he brings him th to these rich people who kind of mirror the, uh, the art collector guy. Who are, who are isolated. Uh, I, I have to disagree here, Rob. I'm sorry. Um, They're not isolated? No, 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 no. Not at all. Um, I mean, I think that... Because here's what happened. This character, Marika, is the... Well, the way that Sid, who's kind of a bigot, describes it, is she's either Arab 
or a gypsy. But basically, she seems to be a woman of Eastern European descent. She's the one who gets them their first apartment. I'm not talking about her, but uh, no, but you I'm said you disagree. I'm, no, I'm getting. What do well, you disagree with? These, I, well, they're not rich, sheltered people, is what I'd say. What here's what they happens. have a shelter that is relatively secure. They well, no, no, they have a they have a living space like many people. They've made their base li- best living space in yeah, the middle of secure. a refugee camp. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't think there are any rich people because this is a refugee camp. Well, they have nice things. Yeah, yeah, they've they've done well for themselves, but I think so is that gypsy character probably. She's you learn to get by. You either die or you learn to get by by being a jack of all trades. The guy brings him sneakers, and they're they're able to get their hands on the goods and services needed. They have a TV. They have a flat screen. They're obviously on the higher end of this refugee camp. Yeah, That's what I'm saying. It's they they represent kind of a parallel back to the rich art collector guy. They're nowhere near the rich art. No, they're nowhere near him. But in terms of the refugee camp, they're fucking better than everybody else in the refugee camp who's all scrounging for scraps. They're not. (laughs) They have fucking tennis shoes. They're well. I don't know that. I don't know which other people do or don't have tennis shoes. Obviously, everyone else in the fucking camp don't have shit. These people are obviously doing way better (laughs) than everybody else in the thing. Don't be careful. You hurt yourself. Oh yeah. Thank you. No, no. at best, though, Rob, at best they're at they're the, at the top of the refugees, man. At the at best, they're at the top of a shit pile that gets bombed when Theo and Key leave it. We see it get bombed, right? But for the time that to call them even closer for to the time that Theo and Key are in there, they are unmolested. They are set up. They're going to get a boat. The guy's going to set them up with everything, and nothing bad happens to them. Everybody just has a good time for like five minutes. Like the fucking collapsometer stops climbing and just like has a flat line, and it's just like things haven't collapsed yet. And it's just only the next day when everything does collapse that yes, we must assume that bad things happen to them. That's the same day. Okay, fine, the same day. After they leave, though, but when they're in that bubble, they're in that bubble, nothing bad happens to Key and Theo um, during that point in time. Everything's just chill during that point in time. And the reason is because they really wanted to highlight this moment of having the baby, the youngest possible living person on the planet, and the oldest people that we see in the entire movie. I mean, if they were down in the pits with the rest of the refugee people, if they weren't doing well, if they weren't on top of the heap, they would be fucking dead because they're the oldest, weakest people we have seen in the movie. Like, well, I, up I until this point in time. they just operate a safe house. They, they keep low. And right. They're doing very well for themselves in this refugee community. I'm just saying they're at the top of this particular spectrum that we are currently being entrenched in. I mean, fine. All we really know about them is that they can afford tennis shoes and picture frames. Right, which nobody, like other people can't even afford that. We don't like, go into any other apartments. No, but when people are walking through, like, you're, <laughs> there's a lot of Clive Owen walking through this desolate landscape of people starving, people who are shot, people who are dead. And this is even before the rebellion, just people who are, like, fucking dying. Oh, and yeah. these people obviously have, like, food, a TV, tennis shoes, whatever they need, and they're old and feeble and weak. And yet they still have this. So obviously they are in a good economic, as far as this is an economy, um, position. Yeah, they're in, the, like, yeah, they are at the probably higher end of the they're shit the, heap. They're the top of the shit heap. They have almost like uh, you and me if we were making like 10K sure. existence. Okay, so that being said, they're the oldest and weakest people. And the reason that this is a calm space is because we want to put on screen at the same time the youngest child and the oldest people in the film, by the way. There's nobody older in the film. 
than that particular couple. Yeah, no, no, I, I like that. I, I and I, I see that. I, I agree. Um, I think at that point where the Marika character, the gypsy woman, moves the baby over, when she learns about the baby, she moves them to this safer place. And, and I assume they were maybe relatives or older friends, like of also Eastern European descent. Well, they don't get there because they get moved. Marika they get takes them there. Who's Marika? The gypsy. Lady. Oh, the yeah, the gypsy, <laughs> and the one who like like beats the shit out of Sid, right? With yeah, the post. nice lady with the dog. Oh yeah, yeah. Who helps them get to the boat? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you know, like this is interesting. Like, if done wrong, I think this could have been offensive. But I think a lot of tension is mined from the fact that we never can understand what Marika says or the richer people that we get taken to. But it's where oh, the, but the scene where fucking Clive Owen was going, a boat, a fucking boat. And he's like he drawing the it? boat. Yeah, yeah. But he's going like boat, boat, boat. And it turns out her word for boat is bot. <laughs> I'm just like, oh, come on. Those are too similar. You probably would have fucking gotten this before he had to draw. You'd be like a boat, a boat. They're like a bot. You'd be like, yeah, bot, whatever that fucking thing. <laughs> like it's really close. There's no way in hell that they needed to draw that. I think boat and bot would have kind of been simpatico, <laughs> you know? <laughs> no, I, I agree. But I think. The movie gets tension out of the fact that we don't know what any of these characters uh, are actually thinking or saying. Um, and in fact, the bad guys are the ones that speak English for this later part when the EGF4 character shows up again. And I think this is where the movie. Yeah, the bitches show up again. Let's get on to that part. Let's wrap the fucking old but, people. But okay, but starting with those old people, this is where the movie's power punch really comes up. This is where collapse happens. I got it right here. Like collapse meter. Like the the inn collapsometers, it's kind of halfway up. Before that, Sid the soldier collapsometer, not quite there yet. <laughs> I got it here. Military, uh, when they get into the uh, conformity gift evil, and Sid kind of like goes like, "Oh, you're pregnant. Oh, you're quite a commodity." Blah blah blah. Collapsometer goes up. Rich people, collapsometer takes a flat line. Then they're all set up to get to the boat and collapse. Happens. It's written here, big with an exclamation point I uh, and like a little squiggly line. Exclamation all right. Exclamation points must be expected. Uh, respected. Great. Collapse but happens. But this but is but why but we get to the part where shit happens. But, but okay, this is, I do have to agree, disagree with you on this though. Collapse happens. Like collapse is the entire environment of this thing from the start. In fact, it's about, it's mostly other than our main characters. Well, the about, uprising happens. It's about. Don't, people. don't put your hand up in front of me. Ah. I'll interrupt you all I want. Okay. Can I interrupt you after? <laughs> yes. Okay. I was done. Oh, well, I'm going to interrupt you then. I'm going to interdict. I think it's largely about people in denial about uh, putting off is the that fact what you think? that collapse has happened. Collapse yeah. has happened? Colla I think collapse is we're in the saddest, most collapsed world ever. And all we have is this one lottery ticket of a baby. Yes, and it's and also no, no, not the one lottery ticket of a baby because they escape many times because of the bloodlust of the, uh, the rebellion people. Yeah, yeah, but like their they, lives—they have worth to start anything. shooting, and like he's able to run out of the room with the baby, or he's able to run away with the baby. They're able to like let's go because they have to shoot yeah, back. They, no, they get like, lucky. They can't, they can't ignore it. They can't take cover and just like reason. They have to keep shooting back. So the bloodlust of the rebellion uh, and. The fight with the military basically make it possible for the baby to like move along. But it's not even just them. It's also I think you get glimpses of the entire culture is rotten. And that's what's so nice about that scene with the old European people is all of a sudden what suddenly slyly emerges once the baby comes is all they're doing is loving the baby. Like everyone's just like, oh, my God, like 
something good. A yeah, baby. they have a respite from the collapsimeter. It's not just a respite. It's everything it's worth living for. It's a flatline of the collapsimeter. It's not a flatline of the collapsimeter. It's no, the not a collapsimeter isn't pushing forward during that time. They're just getting in, involved with the baby and being happy about it. it. It's a world that had been given a cancer diagnosis for 15 years and suddenly was given like a shot of living. It's, it is like the most yeah, electrifying. Yeah, yeah, they get a flatline of the collapsimeter. Yeah, no, it's the baby that does it, though. It's not... Yeah, no, it's the baby being uh, in on the screen at the same time as the old people. Because, yeah, that's... Because they don't speak English, we're like, oh, like, I hope, you know, you old keep hoping... Old people and baby, yeah. Same, you, same screen. You're hoping, like, no one harms Flat the baby. Flatline of collapsimeter. Because, you know, <laughs> two minutes after the baby's introduced, Sid, like, gets pretty violent with it. So you're on edge, just, like, viscerally feeling the danger this infant might be in. Yeah, he points the gun at the baby. He's one of the only people who does that. But then, like, so at first we get, like, the older people, and we're like, oh, yeah, they love the baby. But then later, even soldiers, people who are fighting each other, are just like, whoa, baby. Okay, wait, wait, I have, I have a lot of ex- exclamation points here with baby. Uh, baby! That's an exclamation point. Most important child of all humanity, just like parents before infertility. Baby! Most important... Baby! Jillian. <laughs> Theo. Dylan. Baby! Starts uprising, baby Diego. <laughs> baby, <laughs> I I feel like that could win a poetry slam competition. <laughs> baby Diego, world explosion, <laughs> baby. I like the best up here when I have fishies find thems. <laughs> okay, but let's let's get to what to me is the if anything I'm gonna go back to masterpiece. If anything lifts this into masterpiece. Piece that of master or master of pieces? A piece of masterpieces. Um, Wait, that didn't answer my question. That was like combining both the. I I, I, I know, the dialect. I know, but I didn't understand. I don't understand anything. Uh, but can we talk about the scene in the building with the fighting? Because to that, to me, that's where this movie hits the absolute jackpot. Hits its theme. I, think I already right said in that. Baby is the most important child of all humanity, just like parents before the infertility happened. The baby was the most important thing. All right, but but don't scat it. Explain explain what happens in that scene. Uh, they have the baby, and then so everybody goes, "Whoop, baby!" There's a fucking baby. Stop shooting. But no, first what happens is the EGFOR character and the gang, the fishies, catch up to Owen and Key. I already talked about that. He keeps saying, no, no, you have to leave the baby with me so I can use it for political purpose. But then he has to keep turning back to fire back at the soldiers. Well, not just that. And he can't let go of his bloodlust, and thus they escape. However, that's when Clive Owen is mortally wounded. Or as it were, the the character's name is Theo. Here's what happens. (laughs) They steal the baby, and they're going to execute Clive Owen. Oh, you're talking about before when they're outside? Yeah, well, I mean, this is what leads up to it. already when they're inside. And so, uh, yeah, okay. (laughs) Theo <laughs> is already inside. All right, can we? We've been going scene by scene with much lesser scenes than this. This is yeah, the we, centerpiece of the film. Let's do it. What scene? The scene in the building with the baby. Okay, there's the scene in the building with the baby, and Theo is there, and he's like, "I gotta take the baby. I gotta go." And a guy goes like, "No, Clive Owen finds him with the baby in the building." Well, no, he finds the chick, and they're holding her hostage because they got the gun pointed at her, and he'd been running through the building. Right, yeah, that's right. He's he's got Key and the baby hostage. Yeah, and he grabs the baby, and then the guy goes, "I can't let you go. We need him to unite the everybody." And he goes, "Like I'm taking the baby," and then he has to start shooting at the at the military. No, that that's and when then he that's when he runs and and he goes, "Like I'm taking the baby," and he goes, "Like oh," and he stops and he goes, "Okay." 
And then he goes, but you can't take the baby. And then he shoots, and then like Clive Owen gets mortally wounded. No, that's one of the most important lines, though. Um, no, you, we missed something here. Because what happens is, this is, I think, a great line that transforms, that kind of lays bare the difference between these people who are fighting for political reasons, even if they're justified ones, because Ejiofor's character is a refugee, and refugees in this version of England are treated horribly. So we get to see how justified a lot of his actions are. But what he says is, like, you have to give him to me. And Clive Owen says, it's a girl. Like, in other words, it's not a political bargaining chip. It's a person. It's the entire hope for maintaining the species. And then Ejiofor uh, remembers that he had a sister. Like, so what was petty and political suddenly becomes human in that moment. Yeah, I mean, you know, all that. Uh, let's move on so we can uh, wrap this up. We're running out of time here. Anyway, then there's an incredibly tense scene where they escort the baby down the stairs. You keep thinking it'll get shot. Everyone's in awe of the thing. Then they get outside, and it's really touching. And five seconds after they clear the area, explosion starts again. Life is precious, and sometimes we get reminders, but how soon we forget. Let's close. And then they get to the boat, and uh, Clive Owen dies because he served his mm -hmm. purpose. He's done. Yes, he served his purpose. All right, uh, we'll be right back after uh, some new segment. And then uh, we'll name it and do that whole thing. And then uh, we'll come back and uh, talk about what we're going to do with the ending of the thingy. All right. All right. Hi, everybody. Hi, everybody. We're back. We're going to just add me to next week really quickly. Hi. Hi, Brady. Uh, so what are we doing next week? Uh, you go first. <laughs> Beavis and Butthead do America. <laughs> Your turn. Um, okay, I'll I'll go uh, four months, three weeks, two days again. What is that? Romanian movie. Oh, that's 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 too recent. That's this year. It's only two thousand seven. Oh wait. What I just thinking? heard it mentioned on uh, on film spotting, so therefore I thought it was this year. Um. No, I don't want to do that one. Uh, you're going to have to suggest it in a different one. Uh, before Sunset? No, you're going to have to suggest one that's not a sequel of one we've already done. Okay. Um, well, in that case, let's see. How about... Oh, let me think, let me think. Let's do Adaptation. I've seen that. Um, how about, oh, oh, let's do Blade Runner and then we can get uh, JP on. Okay. Okay. Blade Runner, yeah. uh, the final cut? Oh, uh, whichever one's the better one. That's the longest one. Okay. All right. We'll do Blade Runner final cut. All right. Boom. And one, two, three, ding dong. Carnivorous couch, it happens once a week It swallows us for two hours when we try to sleep It forces us to watch a film about which we then speak Carnivorous couch With Brady and Rob